These laws mean nothing at the end of the day if they're not implemented. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of party and campaign finance regulations around the world are ignored. And they are, in most cases, ignored with impunity. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this episode, Magnus Ullmann, Senior Political Finance Advisor at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, speaks to Chris and Nils from the original Kickback team. The episode takes in a range of issues relevant to corruption in political processes, from the forms of corruption which occur around elections themselves, to the relationship between corruption and political trust. The team also focus in on some of the challenges and lessons learned from managing corruption issues around political finance. Enjoy the episode and thank you for listening. Magnus, very nice to have you on the podcast. So welcome to Kickback. We usually start off our interviews by asking our guests how they got interested in the topic. There's usually some event that sparked the interest uh, and we're very curious to hear your story. Well, my starting point, Chris, is really I've, I've always been interested in power, not in having it, but but in understanding it. And that led me early on to start doing research about how political parties function, uh, how they select their candidates, which was my PhD in political science, focusing on West Africa. And through that, I can be interested in how money flows through political parties and elections. So that was really the starting point in trying to understand how power works. Money isn't power, but money is connected to power. Great. And it seems like you've moved from a political science background and now you work for IFES. So tell us a little bit about your path that led you to to go into a more, let's say, um, applied context. Yeah, I happened to come across IFAS by accident. I was in Ghana in the mid-1990s. IFAS had an office there, and I was very impressed by the work they did. And it led me to do an internship at IFAS in the late 90s, and I've been now been working for the organization since 2004. IFAS International Foundation for Electoral Systems goes back to, the, uh, to 1987 and started out very much doing technical election and support, you know, things like buying ballot boxes for election management bodies, uh, printing ballot papers, that kind of stuff. And we still do that uh, when it's needed. But of course, in a lot of countries, you know, starting in 1980s, so this you have the democratic changes in Latin America, and then in Europe, and in Africa, a lot of countries have now done elections for 20, 30 years. And we can then focus our work on aspects that make elections meaningful and enhance democracy in these countries. And that includes things like looking at money in the political process. Yeah, maybe let's directly uh, follow up on that. So so what makes an election meaningful, right? Like, I can just tell you from my own experience, uh, I live in Berlin, 
we have to repeat the election um, because the last general election was there were so many irregularities and it has led to some people basically really taking a step back and obviously i mean it's it's a bit of an embarrassment for the capital of germany that we have to repeat an election but it kind of makes you realize that how much we take the process of having fair elections for granted by now in germany so i just wonder like from your experience you know what are the the sort of points that you look out for and what do you feel like is a, a, a actually successful elections we're now living in the time where we have sometimes referendums that are held that you know are very questionable in their outcome and so on so i just wonder to hear your thoughts on what you would consider a successful election well i i like it when people take elections for granted because that means that the election process is working I live in the Czech Republic. We've just had the first round of presidential elections here last weekend or the weekend before last. And there's a lot of discussion about the elections and there's no discussion about the election process. And that's good. That means the process is working. That is as long as it is working. Right? There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and that has to be to be repeated And especially in older democracies where this has been going on for a long time, I'm originally from Sweden, where again, no one talks about the election. Well, everyone talks about elections. No one talks about the election process. But we had a similar case as in Berlin, a couple of election cycles where people screwed up because they hadn't uh, thought, they hadn't learned the process properly. So there was that embarrassment that they had to go back and do it again. But it should be that the process is functioning so well that everyone talks about the outcome but not the process itself yeah i really like that perspective taking elections for granted because i mean when you follow the news over the last two years we have some of the most influential countries in the world now in the us and brazil former incumbents questioning the outcome of of an election and that maybe ties into a trend that we see all across the world, actually, and that was supported by the Varieties of Democracy project, that there is some sort of democratic backsliding all over the world happening at the moment, not only with elections, but also with other uh, kind of democratic indicators. So why do you think, what's the process behind this crisis of democracy that we are experiencing? Well, what is, there are several aspects to this, but one of the things is politicians using undermining trust in the electoral process as part of their political and electoral strategy. This does not reflect the quality of the electoral process technically. That hasn't changed. The, the US elections are really good technically, but trust is being undermined. This, if I can say so, is a a type of activity that is very familiar for those of us who have followed politics in sub-Saharan Africa since the return to civil rule in the mid-1990s. It's fairly commonly used by different, different politicians, especially those who know they're not going to win, to undermine the process because it helps them. Unfortunately, that practice how, has now spread to various other parts of the world. You mentioned a couple of countries. Uh, it's important to make sure that we meet such claims 
Because when I say people should take elections for granted, that has to be based on knowing that someone is monitoring the quality of elections, both public institutions, media, civil society, etc. And if something is actually wrong, they'll let us know about it. Maybe a quick follow-up on that. So I was uh, looking uh, on the on the website a little bit, and you have this theme on corruption and political trust put together into one theme. So I guess one of the of the pillars of IFIS is that these two concepts are connected. And since this is also a, a corruption podcast, so and you mentioned political trust that trust is so paramount for uh, for the elect electoral process. So, or, or what is your opinion on on how political trust and corruption is related. Yeah, absolutely rightly said. IFAS has been looking at this issue quite some time. And about a year ago, we set up the Center for Anti-Corruption and Democratic Trust that does look at these issues together. And there's a distinction here. If we talk about the technical process of election administration, which we've been doing, that works fairly well in most, especially older democracies. Corruption, not so much. Right, We have big issues with corruption, and we're talking mainly about, when, when I'm talking, we're talking mainly about political corruption, things that impact the political process in one way or another. So here it really is a, a case of combining efforts against political corruption with building political trust. So technical election administration is mainly making sure that people realize how good the system is, Corruption, we also have to make sure the system is good. And in most cases, it isn't right now. Yeah, so maybe let's dive into that. So maybe you could walk our listeners through the different forms of corruption that can occur in, you know, in the context of elections. Um, I once read a newspaper article in the, the African version of The Guardian, where a commentator said, like, there's too much uh, emphasis on the election itself and too little emphasis on what happens in the month prior to that, right? Like, and I, I just would love to hear your perspective on the entire process and all the risk factors of corruption that can occur. I completely agree with what that person said. If you define election as something that happens on polling day, for us, an election is something that happens basically starting the day after the previous election and goes on until the next election. So the electoral process includes all these aspects at all points in time. We spend most of the, our efforts on, on election campaigns when we are talking about uh, dealing with political corruption. And that then, but we then start with this work long before that. And obviously this work has to continue long after that. To just give you one illustration, I work with elections. That's been my job for a couple of decades. I haven't been in a country on election day since 2000. And that's because if my work and the, our work with corruption hasn't been done by election days, too late. It has to happen before that. And then we come back after election has cooled down a bit, and then we start working for the next election. So there are all these different aspects of those running elections, where do they raise money from? Things like, is the money coming from abroad? Is it coming from criminal activities? or simply coming from opaque sources that we don't know where it comes from. Things like uh, abuse of state resources, which is a massive thing ahead of an election where a powerful uh, could be incumbent party very often, but doesn't have to be, uh, uses resources of the state 
uh, to ensure that they their chances of electoral success is increased. It connects with things like the public procurement process, especially after an election. And after an election is the same as before the next election. Or seeing what's the connection between who those who give money to political parties or election campaigns or to someone who, who campaigns you know, on behalf of someone else and getting uh, often very significant public contracts. There are many different aspects and then direct things like vote buying, but there are no end of the type of political corruption that we are dealing with. I find it interesting, like you said last, like vote buying, which I, think, I guess a lot of people, if you just tell them the two words, elections, corruption, that's maybe the first association, right? Like people handing out cash for votes. And there might be an argument that by, you know, getting more experienced in the democratic process or in elections, the forms of corruption shift away from that. And I wonder if that's something that you've observed too, that the forms of corruption become a little bit more hidden and less obvious to uh, the external, well, reviewer like you who's who's observing elections. I wonder if you could comment on that. I think to some extent that's true, especially the very crude, I give you money, you will be a type of activity in some countries. We've seen that reduced but then what it means is normally that the corruption is pushed back in time and it happens a little bit further ahead further along from the election but vote buying we need to understand is part of a much larger form of corrupt practices and in many parts of the world you don't have that much of i give you money you vote for me it's rather i go to the village I explained that I will with my thoughts. You know, the road to the village is fixed. The, the community building or the school is repaired. And then I didn't. I don't need to know how anyone has voted. I just know how the polling station has voted because that's posted officially, right? And if the polling station voted for me, I come back and I do what I said I would. If not. Forget about it. There's a distinction here to be made between campaign promises, which is part of democracy, and outright vote buying. But um, certainly clientelistic structures are a significant problem in many parts of the world. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I think the podcast, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, the podcast by Brian Klaas, uh, Power Corrupt. I think the very first episode was how to rig an election. And it was very insightful to see all the subtle ways that are employed all over the world to actually make sure that the election on election day is already rigged beforehand. And uh, I think this brings us to our next topic, which is party financing or political financing in general. And this is a topic that you have worked extensively on and also all across the world, as, as far as I know. I'm very interested because this is a topic that I don't know very much about, to be honest. So to learn from your experience, what are your most important lessons learned from that work? And also, what are the biggest challenges? Is it more like a regulatory problem that there are no sufficient laws in place? Or is it more like an enforcement problem that these laws exist, but they're not really enforced? Or are there other challenges that I cannot really think of yet? It's good to have good laws. A long time ago, I worked on a database on political finance regulations around the world. And that included 180 countries. So it's pretty much all countries in the world. And I thought to myself, maybe we'll find some regulations on this issue. It's quite narrow in 
two-thirds of countries, let's say. In the end, we couldn't find a single country that didn't have at least some regulations on party and campaign finance. It could be just saying public servants are not allowed to give money to institutions, to parties and candidates, or it could be a ban on vote buying, for example. But something is always there. These laws mean nothing at the end of the day if they're not implemented. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of party and campaign finance regulations around the world are ignored. And they are, in most cases, ignored with impunity. Uh, they are not even considered. So it is something that parliaments normally do go along and put some regulations in place, but very little happens for a range of reasons. Part of this is, this is a very politically sensitive issue we're dealing with. Maybe to quickly follow up. So Niels and I have been working on the uh, the potential use of data, of digital data, of artificial intelligence to curb corruption globally. And this strikes me as a potential field of application here, because it seems that there is a, a lack of data here. How do you think collecting data on uh, party financing, but analyzing that data and having trusted databases on that, uh, how do you think this could help? And do you think this is even feasible also maybe for a uh, civil society organization to, to push for these kind of databases to make party financing more transparent? I think in many cases, not all, it may or may not be feasible for civil society groups to push for such databases, but it is feasible for them to create such databases. I hear this is often an area where civil society needs to go before public institutions. Because public institutions have significant limitations in terms of their resources and capacity. They may also have regulatory limitations. But civil society groups, and we do see this in a number of countries, can be very effective in scraping data from public resources and make that available to people, not least journalists, uh, in a very more user-friendly uh, format. They can also gather data from other sources. Uh, a major thing now is the issue of online advertising. So this is an issue where we are all discussing how we can make this be as transparent as possible. And only a couple of months ago, I first launched a community of practice that specifically looks at online campaigning and online advertising. And there are different solutions for different countries, but a lot of uh, the way forward is to scrape data from different online sources and put that together and make that available. I think that's super interesting and relating to what Chris just said. I think that technology could play such a, a nice role in making it even easier to, you know, sift through those databases, make it actionable for groups like you already mentioned, journalists, for example, that can easily then, you know, report on, on these cases that are either suspicious, etc. So I just wonder, because I saw also on your website that you're working with journalists and you're training them in you know, how to report on these things. Could you maybe walk us through how that typically a, comes about? Like, is it the journalists who reach out to you or are you trying to actually actively reach out to journalists? And then maybe also tell us in a bit detail, like how these trainings actually look like. What do you teach journalists? What are skills that are useful when, when reporting about these topics? This is an incredibly important area because we have a big problem dealing with these issues, which is 
These are very important issues, but they're not necessarily evident to ordinary citizens. Uh, we talk about party finance, we talk about campaign finance, but how is that relevant to the everyday life of an average citizen? We need journalists of different types, both traditional and, and social media journalists and citizen journalists, to help bridge that and explain the relevance of these rather technical issues that we're talking about for an ordinary audience. So we then use a combination of approaches as IFAS. One is general trainings. We normally have journalists develop the, the training curricula so that it is relevant uh, for individual journalists. It is necessary very often to explain simply what the regulatory framework in a country is. Because sometimes journalists say they find something bad, but they're not sure is that actually illegal or just maybe something that should, or is it wrong, should be illegal. So that's a key aspect that we spend a lot of time discussing. Is this illegal? If not, should it be illegal? Or is it more something where we should advocate for a change of behavior or political actors? And then it's a combination of approaches. We've run competitions for investigative journalists on political writing political finance pieces. Uh, we have had cross-country events where journalists from different countries come together and discuss similar challenges, because very often they have challenges not simply in capacity, but also in well the freedom that they have to report on different things. And those challenges are often uh, the great similarities between countries. So it's a majority of different approaches that needs to be done, and it obviously needs to be done in a way that's relevant to journalists. One meeting I had yesterday, it was emphasized that half day training that we had, we should probably split that up and do maybe one hour per week because it fits a journalist schedule much better than to you know set aside half a day in one go. And do these journalists usually reach out to you or do you look for journalists who have already reported on similar issues in the past? So how does that so how does that collaboration process evolve? It's often a combination of all of the things you mentioned, but very often we identify a need together with stakeholders in a country to get messages about these issues out to the general people. And then we look at who, what journalists come to us, what journalists, as you say, have been writing about this in the past, and possibly other journalists. I like to find a combination of engaging investigative journalists who can spend quite a bit long time on pieces, but also find you know those who do the day-to-day -day journalism, the right uh, quick article, they maybe have a couple of hours put to meet uh, a deadline, but we need to get the message out to those as well. Actually, I, I had a discussion this morning about it. Like, can there be too much attention to corruption in the public media? Right. Like there is this idea that if you report about corruption very frequently, there might be this corruption malaise. And some people have shown that actually in, in messaging campaigns, if you are informing them about high levels of corruption, that can sort of backfire in the sense that people perceive it to be very widespread, maybe get frustrated and maybe even use it as a rationalization for themselves to engage in corruption. Because I feel like, okay, yeah, this is everywhere. And, you know, if everybody else is corrupt, I, I can do it. I might do it as well. Just wonder if you could speak to that, if, if there's anything in that direction of being careful with how much you put corruption topics related to it on the agenda, whether you've experienced any sort of backfiring effect. 
Well, this is an issue that we come across a lot when we talk about increasing transparency in things like party and campaign finance. Sitting either with civil society or with a public oversight institution, we do need to acknowledge that a lot of the time this is what happens. When we increase transparency, trust uh, tends to go down because people see the bad things that are happening. But I am of the belief that eventually... I want people to to look and see, oh, there isn't a lot of reporting of corruption happening. That must be because there isn't a lot of corruption happening. People are actually studying this issue. They are telling me when things are going wrong, but they've now been doing it for so long, and this is a very long-term process, that corruption has actually gone down. I need to be confident as an average citizen that there is someone there looking out for these issues. They'll tell me if something is going wrong. I think that's super interesting. So we had uh, on our podcast before we had some investigative journalists who were part of the Panama Papers revelations and the Pandora Papers. And what they have been telling us is that they are very trained and they are highly trained uh, on these kind of topics and reporting on illicit finance. But what they were struggling with is sometimes that the general public, they take notice, but they don't really care enough to push for any social change. So is that part of the training as well? So really going into the detail of how maybe to tell the story of corruption differently? So one idea was to to focus on, on the victims more or to actually connect issues like a rotting infrastructure and a rotten healthcare system directly to issues of corruption. So how much into detail do these trainings go also in terms of actually yeah, kind of like storytelling or narratives uh, surrounding the topic of corruption. That is absolutely where we need to put focus, because if we talk about corruption as this big businessman who puts a million dollars in his pockets and buys a yacht, at the end of the day, so, so, so what, right? But if we get into the issue that you didn't get the education that you were supposed to do, or your mother didn't get the health care that she was supposed to get because someone had stolen the money that was meant for that. That is where this becomes real for individuals. And that's part, that's a story that we need to tell the message that we need to get out. It's a similar, similar to saying, don't sell your votes. Okay, fine. But that doesn't really do anything. If you explain, if you go in and dialogue with people about the negative long-term impact for democracy and the economy in the country, whatever country may be, for you, for your children and your grandchildren, that's where we can start having an impact. Yeah, so it, you mentioned that you sometimes also work with uh, groups of journalists that come from different countries. And it's an ongoing discussion in the corruption field of how much are best practices actually translatable to other cultural contexts, right? So I could see that some of the problems are probably similar, right? Like you mentioned, if there is a restriction to media freedom, I guess that's something that, you know, wherever it occurs is a, is a major challenge. I just wonder to what extent in general you have experienced some of you know, best practices that are more or less directly translatable and maybe others where you feel it's less so? You know, I've been thinking about this and I'm wondering if these differences in terms of media in particular have not become less 
tangible in recent years rather than more in the sense that the media landscape is more similar across countries with things like social media, with things like online reporting. The huge differences between countries in how do newspapers get their license or what restrictions are there on television reporting, what is allowed, what isn't allowed. But if you are doing most of your reporting online, I think there are instances where there are actually more to be learned across countries now than there would have been 10 years ago. Well, so maybe on a more more general note is how do these projects work in general? So do you have people on the ground or working with other civil society organizations, in this case from Myanmar, from Ukraine, from other countries in the world? Do you have your own people there? In how far do you collaborate also with regional or even local or national governments. So how is the structure of IFIS? I want to learn a little bit more how these projects actually come together. Well, so with, with some rare exceptions, we will have an office in a country where we work and we have our own people, not necessarily an awful lot of people, but be able to make sure that we can monitor that the programming is effective, that there's no corruption within the project itself, etc. We get nowhere without working with local stakeholders. That's what the work is. And then which these stakeholders are depends entirely on the country context and the work that's being commit being done. It's rare that we do not work with civil society groups. Uh, in one format or another. And then that can be either that they come to us or that we contact specific organizations that we know has done great work. Maybe we've worked with them in the past, or we may put out uh, a call for proposals from organizations, all depending what it is. We very often work with the election management body, the Central Election Commission or whatever it may be called in the country, where the work is more election-focused. You mentioned at the very beginning that you have been or you were initially interested in power. Nowadays, there is a lot of discussion that power, like the concept of power is shifting in the, in the direction of access to data and algorithms is the new form of power, right? Like some call it the new oil, the new money, whatever resource has re like was powerful in the past. And I just wonder like two things, A, how your views and maybe beliefs about power have changed over the last years uh, since you've been working on it and whether you want to comment on this idea that we might be sort of facing a new a shift to different forms of power uh, when we're moving more and more into a digital world. I think as a starting point, we need to be careful at when we look at potential shifts in power. Sometimes there is a lot more to the story than what may be visible. So we've often seen fairly similar type of power sources expressing their power in different ways. So things don't didn't look the same in the 1920s as they did in the 1820s, and they don't look the same as the 2020s as they did in the 1920s. That doesn't necessarily mean that different people have power than they did back then. But the format and the way that power takes, I think, yes, is shifting quite a lot. It shifted 
About 100 years ago, a lot to who could drum up popular support, a lot in terms of elections, which wasn't a thing before First World War uh, in most places. And it's now, I think, as you say, gradually shifting to who has access to information. Maybe the same people uh, behind the scene, but the format and their sources of power are different. I think this is super interesting. So the notion that the same people are powerful, so there is not much change there, but the form of power on the means through which they come to into power and, and gain that power and actually then preserve it. I think this is very, very interesting point. Um, maybe to wrap up, this was a very insightful conversation, Magnus. So what we have usually for our guests also is a pick of the podcast. So something that is corruption related that But this is nothing academic or anything like this. So a movie, uh, a documentary you've seen, a book you read, a podcast you've discovered or something like this, something that you can recommend to our listeners if they want to learn more maybe about the topic that you're working on or corruption in more in general. Uh, well, I mean, I, I would have to mention another podcast then, not in, in competition with yours. <laughs> competition, <obviously>. I just... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... I've always followed uh, the In Our Time podcast, which is the people on it are academics and they're talking about fairly specific issues ranging in a wide range of, of topics. And if you want to just learn more about the world we live in, hearing from people who know a lot about what they are talking about, you need to check that out. That's very important. Great pick. Thanks so much for the interview, Magnus. I think we all learned a lot and we're looking forward to following your work in the future as well. Thank you very much.